who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12.2 We are profited from the word when we attend to the root of joy. The spring of joy is faith. Now the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Romans 15.13 There is a wondrous provision in the gospel, both by what it takes from us and brings to us, to give a calm and settled glow to the Christian's heart. It takes away the load of guilt by speaking peace to the stricken conscience. It removes that dread of God and terror of death which weighs on the soul while conscious it is under his condemnation. It gives a realization of reconciliation to him and acceptance with him. It gives us God himself as a portion of our hearts, as the object of our communion. The gospel works joy because the soul is at rest in God. But these blessings become our own only by personal appropriation. Faith must receive them, and when it does so, the heart is filled with peace and joy. And the secret of sustained joy is to keep the channel open, to continue as we began. It is unbelief which clogs that channel. If there be but little heat around the bulb of the thermometer, no wonder that the mercury marks so low a degree. If there is a weak faith, joy cannot be strong. Daily do we need to pray for a fresh realization of the preciousness of the gospel, a fresh appropriation of its blessed contents, and then there will be a renewing of our joy. We are profited from the word when we are careful to maintain our joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit is of an altogether different order from a natural buoyancy of spirit. It is the product of the Comforter dwelling in our hearts and bodies, revealing Christ to us, answering all our need for pardon and cleansing and so setting us at peace with God, and forming Christ in us so that he reigns in our souls, subduing us to his control. There are no circumstances of trial and temptation in which we may refrain from it, for the command is to rejoice in the Lord always. He who gave this command knows all about the dark side of our lives, the sins and sorrows which beset us, the much tribulation through which we must enter the kingdom of God. Natural hilarity leaves the woes of our earthly lot out of reckoning. It soon relaxes in presence of life's hardships. It cannot survive the loss of friends or health. But the joy to which we are exhorted is not limited to any set of circumstances or type of temperament, nor does it fluctuate with our varying moods and fortunes. 
Nature may assert itself in the subjects of it, as even Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Nevertheless, they can exclaim with Paul, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. The Christian may be loaded with heavy responsibilities. His life may have a series of reverses. His plans may be thwarted and his hopes blighted. The grave may close over the loved ones who gave to his earthly life its cheer and sweetness, and yet, under all his disappointments and sorrows, his Lord still bids him rejoice. Behold the apostles in Philippi's prison, in the innermost dungeon, with feet fast in stocks and backs bleeding and smarting from the terrible scurrying they had received. How were they occupied? In grumbling and growling, in asking what they have done to deserve such treatment? No. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Acts 16.25 Ah, there is no sin in their lives. They were walking obediently, and so the Holy Spirit was free to take of the things of Christ and show them unto their hearts, so that they were filled to overflowing. If we are to maintain our joy, we must keep from grieving the Spirit. When Christ is supreme in the heart, joy fills it. When He is Lord of every desire, the source of every motive, the subjugator of every lust, then will joy fill the heart and praise a sin from the lips. The possession of this joy involves taking up the cross every hour of the day. God has so ordered it that we cannot have the one without the other. Self-sacrifice, the cutting of a right hand and the plucking out of a right eye are the avenues through which the Spirit enters the soul, bringing with Him the joys of God's approving smile and the assurance of His love an abiding presence. Much also depends upon the spirit in which we enter the world each day. If we expect people to pet and pamper us, disappointment will make us fretful. If we desire our pride to be ministered unto, we are dejected when it is not. The secret of happiness is forgetting self in seeking to minister unto the happiness of others. It is more blessed to give than to receive, so it is a happier thing to minister unto others than to be ministered unto. We are profited from the word when we are sedulous in avoiding the hindrances to joy. Why is it that so many Christians have so little joy? Are they not all born children of the light and of the day? This term light, which is so often used in Scripture to describe to us the nature of God, our relation to Him and our future destiny, is most suggestive of joy and gladness. 
What other thing in nature is so beneficent and beautiful as the light? God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5 Ah, it is only as we walk with God in the light that the heart can truly be joyous. It is the deliberate allowance of things which mar our fellowship with Him that chills and darkens our souls. It is the indulgence of the flesh, the fraternizing with the world, the entering of forbidden paths which blights our spiritual lives and makes us cheerless. David had to cry, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51.12 He had grown lax and self-indulgent. Temptation presented itself and he had no power to resist. He yielded and one sin led to another. He was a backslider out of touch with God. Unconfessed sin lay heavy on his conscience. Oh, my brethren and sisters, if we are to be kept from such a fall, if we are not to lose our joy, then self must be denied, the affections and lusts of the flesh crucified. We must ever be on our watch against temptation. We must spend much time upon our knees. We must drink frequently from the fountain of living water. We must be out and out for the Lord. We are profited from the word when we diligently preserve the balance between sorrow and joy. If the Christian faith has a marked adaptation to produce joy, it has an almost equal design and tendency to produce sorrow, a sorrow that is solemn, manly, noble, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10 is the rule of the Christian's life. If faith casts its light upon our condition, our nature, our sins, sadness must be one of the effects. There is nothing more contemptible in itself, and there is no more sure mark of a superficial character and a trivial round of occupation than unshaded gladness that rests on no deep foundation of quiet, patient grief, grief because I know what I am and what I ought to be, grief because I have learned the exceeding sinfulness of sin, grief because I look out on the world and see hell's fire burning at the back of its mirth and laughter and know what it is that men are hurrying to. Ah, He who was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, Psalm 45, 7, was also the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And both of these characters are, in measure, repeated in the operations of his gospel upon every heart that really receives it. And if by the fears it removes from us and the hope it breathes into us, and the fellowship into which it introduces us, we are anointed with the oil of gladness, 
On the other hand, by the sense of our own vileness which it teaches us by the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, there is infused a sadness which finds expression in O wretched man that I am, Romans 7.24. These two are not contradictory but complementary. The lamb must be eaten with bitter herbs. Exodus 12.8 Arthur Pink Study number six The Fight of Faith There are some who teach that those Christians who engage in spiritual fighting are living below their privileges. They insist that God is willing to do all our fighting for us. Their pet slogan is, Let go and let God. They say that the Christian should turn the battle over to Christ. There is a half-truth in this, yet only a half-truth, and carried to extremes, it becomes error. The half-truth is that the child of God has no inherent strength of his own, says Christ to his disciples. Without me ye can do nothing. John 15.5 Yet this does not mean that we are to be merely passive, or that the ideal state in this life is simply to be galvanized automatons. There is also a positive, an active, aggressive side to the Christian life, which calls for the putting forth of our utmost endeavors, the use of every faculty, a personal and intelligent cooperation with Christ. There is not a little of what is known as the victorious life teaching which is virtually a denial of the Christian's responsibility. It is lopsided. While emphasizing one aspect of truth, it sadly ignores other aspects equally necessary and important to be kept before us. God's word declares that every man shall bear his own burden, Galatians 6.5, which means that he must discharge his personal obligation. Saints are bidden to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, 2 Corinthians 7.1, and to keep themselves unspotted from the world, James 1.27. We are exhorted to overcome evil with good, Romans 13.21. The Apostle Paul declared, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9.27 Thus, to deny that a Christian is called upon to engage in a ceaseless warfare with the flesh, the world, and the devil, is to fly in the face of many plain scriptures. There is a very real twofoldness to the Christian life, and every aspect of divine truth is balanced by its counterpart. Practical godliness is a mysterious paradox which 
is incomprehensible to the natural man. The Christian is strongest when he is weakest, wealthiest when he is poorest, happiest when most wretched. The one known, 1 John 3.1, yet he is well known, 2 Timothy 1.19. Though dying, 1 Corinthians 15.31, yet behold, he lives. Though having nothing, yet he possesses all things, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Though persecuted, he is not forsaken, cast down, he is not destroyed. He is called upon to rejoice with trembling, Psalm 2.11, and is assured, Happy are ye that weep now, Luke 6.21. Though the Lord maketh him to lie down in green pastures, and leadeth him beside still waters, he is yet in the wilderness, and in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, Psalm 63.1. Though followers of the Prince of Peace. Christians are to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.3 And though more than conquerors, they are often defeated. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 We are called upon to engage in a ceaseless warfare. The Christian life is to be lived out on the battlefield. We may not like it. We may wish that it were otherwise. But so has God ordained. And our worst foe, our most dangerous enemy is self. That old man which ever wants his way, which rebels against the yoke of Christ, which hates the cross, that old man which opposes every desire of the new man, which dislikes God's word and ever wants to substitute man's word. But self has to be denied, Matthew 16:24, his affections and lusts crucified, Galatians 5:24. Yet that is by no means an easy task. Oh, what a conflict is ever going on within the true Christian. True, there are times when the old man pretends to be asleep or dead, but soon he revives and is more vigorous than ever in opposing that new man. Then it is that the real Christian seriously asks, If it be so that I truly am a child of God, why am I thus? Such was Rebecca's puzzling problem when the children struggled together within her. Genesis 25:22. What a parable in action is set before us in the Scripture. Do we need any interpreter? Does not the Christian have the key which explains that parable in? the conflicting experiences of his own soul? Yes. And is not the sequel the same with you and me, as it was with poor Rebecca? She went and inquired of the Lord. Ah, her husband could not solve the mystery for her. 
no man could, nor did she lean unto her own understanding and try to reason it out. No, the struggle inside her was so great and fierce, she must have divine assurance. Nor did God disappoint her and leave her in darkness. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three. But the meaning of such a verse is hid from those who are, in their own conceits, wise and prudent. But blessed be God, it is revealed to those who, taught of the Spirit, are made to realize they are babes, that is, who feel they are ignorant, weak, helpless, for that is what babes are. And who were the two nations that struggled together inside Rebekah? Esau and Jacob from whom two vastly different nations descended, namely Edom and Israel. Now observe closely what follows. And the one people shall be stronger than the other. Yes, Esau was so strong that Jacob was afraid of him and fled from him. So it is spiritually. The old man is stronger than the new man. How strange that it should be so. Would we not naturally conclude that that which is born of the Spirit is stronger than that which is born of the flesh? John 3.6 Of course, we would naturally think so, for the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 but consider the matter from the standpoint of spiritual discernment. Suppose the new man were stronger than the old man, then what? Why, the Christian would be self-sufficient, proud, haughty. But God in his infinite wisdom allows the new man in his children to be weaker than the old man. Why? that they may depend upon Him. But it is one thing to know the theory of this, and it is quite another to put it into practice. It is one thing to believe the new man, Jacob, is weaker than the old man, Esau, who was born first. And it is quite another thing to daily seek and obtain from God the needed strength to fight against the old man. That is why it is called the good fight of faith, for faith treats with God. Fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6.12. Our circumstances are the battleground. The flesh is never long satisfied with the circumstances in which God places us, but always wants to change them or get into another set than we are now in. Thus it was with Israel of old. The circumstances into which God had brought the children of Israel was the wilderness, 
And they murmured and wished they were back in Egypt. And that is written as a warning for us. The tendency of circumstances is to bind our hearts to the earth. When prosperous, to make us satisfied with things. When adverse, to make us repine over or covet the things which we do not have. Nothing but the exercise of real faith can lift our hearts above circumstances. For faith looks away from all things seen, so that the heart delights itself and finds its peace and joy in the Lord. Psalm 37.4 This is never easy to any of us. It is always a fight, and only divine grace, diligently sought, can give us the victory. Oftentimes we fail. When we do, this must be confessed to God, 1 John 1, 9, and a fresh start made. Nothing but faith can enable us to rise above circumstances. It did so in the case of the two apostles who, with feet fast in the stocks, with backs bleeding and smarting, sang praises to God in Philippi's dungeon. That was faith victorious over most unpleasant circumstances. We can almost imagine each hearer saying, Alas, my faith is so weak. Ah, ponder again this word. Fight the good fight of faith. Note the repetition. It is not easy for faith to rise above circumstances. No, it is not. It is difficult, at times extremely difficult, so the writer has found it. But remember, a fight is not finished in a moment by one blow. Oftentimes, the victor receives many wounds and is sorely pounded before he finally knocks out his enemy. So we have found it and still find it. The great enemy, the flesh, self, gives the new man many a painful blow, often floors him, but by grace we keep on fighting. Sometimes the new man gets the victory, sometimes the old man does. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Proverbs 24:14. Yes, dear hearer, Every real Christian has a fight on his hands. Self is the chief enemy which has to be conquered. Our circumstances, the battleground where the combat has to be waged. And each of us would very much like to change the battleground. There are unpleasant things which at times sorely try each of us until we are tempted to cry with the afflicted psalmist, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I might fly away. Psalm 55, 6 Yes, sad to say, the writer has been guilty of the same thing. But when he is in his right mind spiritually, he is thankful for these very circumstances. Why? because they afford an opportunity for faith to act and rise above them 
and for us to find our peace, our joy, our satisfaction, not in pleasant surroundings, not in congenial friends, nor even in sweet fellowship with brethren and sisters in Christ, but in God. He can satisfy the soul. He never fails those who truly trust Him. But it is a fight to do so. Yes, a real, long, hard fight. Yet, if we cry to God for help, for strength, for determination, He does not fail us, but makes us more than conquerors. There is that in each of us which wants to play the coward, run away from the battlefield, our circumstances. This is what Abraham did, Genesis 12.10, but he gained nothing by it. This was what Jacob did, Genesis 28, and in consequence his trials were multiplied. This is what Elijah did, 1 Kings 19.3, and the Lord rebuked him for it. And these instances are recorded for our learning, Romans 15.4, as warnings for us to take to heart. They tell us that we must steadfastly resist this evil inclination and call to mind that exhortation, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quite you, act like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Fight the good fight of faith, nor does the Lord call upon us to do something from which he was exempted. Oh, what a fight the captain of our salvation endured. See him yonder in the wilderness, forty days tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. Mark 1.13 And all that time without food. Matthew 4.2 How fiercely the devil assaulted him, renewing his attack again and yet again. And the Savior met and conquered him on the ground of faith, using only the word of God. See him again in Gethsemane. There the fight was yet fiercer, and so intense were his agonies that he sweat great drops of blood. Nor was there any comfort from his disciples. They could not watch with him one hour. Yet he triumphed, and that, on the ground of faith, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Hebrews 5.7 Those two instances are recorded for our instruction, and as ever, their order is beautifully significant. They teach us how we are to fight the good fight of faith, Christ himself has left us an example. And what do we learn from these solemn and sacred incidents? This. The only weapon we are to use is the sword of the Spirit, and victory is only to be obtained on our knees with strong crying and tears. The Lord graciously enable us so to act Oh, that each of us 
may more earnestly seek grace to fight the good fight of faith, we shall have happy and peaceful fellowship together in heaven. But before we get there, the fight has to be fought and won, or we shall never get there at all. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 Arthur Pink Study number 7 Grieving the Spirit Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 To quote Robert Hawker, 1825, Methinks I would make this scripture the motto of my daily walk, to keep in remembrance more than the dearest friend that wears the ring of love upon his finger, and bears it above with him whithersoever he goeth. And is the Holy Spirit grieved whenever a child of God forgetteth Jesus, and by indulgence in sin loses sight of those sufferings which he endured on account of sin? Yes, God the Holy Spirit is grieved. Communion with God the Father is interrupted, and all the agonies and bloody sweat of Jesus forgotten, if there be a loose and careless life. And shall I ever grieve the Holy Spirit by any one allowed transgression? Would not my soul feel shame at the consciousness of it? Even if no eye but his had seen the foul act. Wouldst thou grieve for me, O Lord, at such a sight? Can it be possible that a poor worm of the earth such as I am should excite such regard and attention? And shall not the consideration have its constant an unceasing influence upon my soul? Shall I grieve the Holy Lord by an unholy conduct? Shall I quench those sweet influences which first quickened me and recompense the kindness which had it not been called forth to my spiritual life would have left me to this hour as it first found me dead in trespasses and sins? O Thou Holy, Blessed, Gracious Lord God the Spirit, withdraw not, I beseech Thee, Thy restraining influences, leave me not for a moment to myself. Thou knowest that I shall grieve Thee, if unassisted by Thy grace. Self-will and confidence, sloth and forgetfulness, Pride and presumption will afford an opportunity to the great enemy of souls to betray me into sin, if thou do not keep me. But if thou, Lord, wilt keep me, I shall be well kept. Thou wilt lead me to the all-precious Jesus. Thou wilt take of his, and so effectually show it to me, that I shall be prepared for guided in and carried through all acts of holy obedience and by thy sweet influences and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus I shall be enabled to mortify the deeds of the body 
so as to live. My soul, be thou constantly looking to Jesus, seeking communion with the Holy Spirit, and crying out to God the Father with David, Take not thine Holy Spirit from me, that I may not grieve that Holy Lord, by whom I am sealed unto the day of redemption. This concludes the June studies. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.